I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day everyone, Wayne Rubin here and welcome to episode five of the show Hard Yards in Leadership. Does everyone sometimes have those weird experiences where you have a few days where all conversations tend to lead to the same place or the same topic? Over the last three or four days, I've had this thing, every conversation I have that's vaguely got something to do with business seems to finish up with someone wanting to talk to me about executive coaching. And, you know, that's funny because in the first instance, it's something that I do. I don't just do it. I really enjoy doing it and I get so much back from doing it too. And look, I'm, I've got to say, I'm thrilled that more people seem to be realizing that having a coach is, is, is a good thing. Um, frankly, I guess uh, I'm not so sure that I'd want to be a senior leader sitting behind the big desk in today's fast-changing and complex business world without having a great coach at my side. So it's with that sort of strange events background uh, that I'm thrilled to now introduce my guest for today, who is Natalie Ashdown. And Natalie is one of Australia's most senior and experienced coaches. She's also a recognized speaker and author. She's the founder and CEO of Open Door Coaching, which she started in 2003. Do the math, that's 20 years ago. Natalie's just one of 18 coaches in Australia to hold the International Coach Federation Master Certified Coach credential. And she's co-president of the International Coach Federation for Victoria. She's worked extensively across um, not just businesses, but also government and the private sector and has experience in international coaching and as a keynote speaker. She's a qualified surf lifesaver. She runs a surf education program for 180 kids in the summer holidays. And she's also a uh, black belt in Taekwondo. So uh, master of many, many talents is, uh, is Natalie Ashdown. So in this episode, I will be seeking to explore with Natalie and the first instance, going back to the first time when she had to deal with rumors about herself in the workplace. And that's something that we just all find difficult when that happens. And it does. I want to learn about what happened when she faced a major conflict between what she saw as her business priorities and looking after her people. I want to get deep into her experience of having imposter syndrome in meetings and at other times. And so many of us really suffer from imposter syndrome. It's so debilitating. And of course, with someone with Natalie's background and experience, I want to get her advice on how to help up and coming leaders on their journey. With that, I'd love to welcome Natalie onto the show. We're speaking to you now as you look back on 20 years of founding and then leading and running your business. How does it feel to be 20 years in? It feels great, actually. It feels like a really great achievement. And I've spent some time reflecting, you know, particularly over last weekend about the way the workplace has changed, the way coaching has changed, the way our approach to learning and development has changed, but also our approach to leadership as well. It feels really nice to reflect and I've been expressing a lot of gratitude as well and gratefulness for everything that we've achieved and every way we've been able to make a difference and every person that's actually been part of Open Door Coaching. So it's been wonderful. Before Open Door, my understanding is you were kind of in the corporate world and making a career for yourself there. Tell me and the listeners a little bit about the decision to kind of step from one swim lane into a very different swim lane. A few people might have heard the story, actually, and I'm quite honest about this, that I was in a consulting capacity, so uh, in project management, in business analysis, I was earning 
really good money for the clients that my company actually worked with. And I quite honestly felt like I could make more money by doing it myself. So, so it was kind of driven by this interest in consulting, making more money, but it was also about having a sense of freedom that I could make decisions and do things myself. And so I was really driven by that consulting feel. And then I discovered coaching. So everything changed actually when I discovered coaching because I was 100% just going to make a stack of money being a consultant. (laughs) And then I really moved into actually I really want to make a difference and the difference that I want to make is through coaching. So I actually started out with consulting and contracts around consulting, but I had one or two coaching clients and my idea was to cash flow the coaching business by consulting, which was great because I had this steady flow of income and I had one or two little coaching contracts. And the more that I focused on coaching, the more that grew. My vision was actually to enable people and, and bring out the best in people using coaching rather than consulting, just telling people what to do, even though I think I was a natural born teller and director. So. <laughs> Yeah, so it was an interesting switch actually in terms of motivation, but I quickly caught on to the real motivation, what's really important to me, and I found that coaching was the way to do that. It's amazing when you have your life experiences, they help us find our true purpose so long as we're open to looking out for that and realising when the connection is right. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know back then what this thing called coaching was. It wasn't really fully established, particularly in Australian workplaces. I was really, I think, taking a risk at the time to pursue this thing called coaching, which not many people knew about, particularly in the corporate world, because coaching back then was used mostly for remedial purposes or only targeted executives. My vision was about bringing the enabling skills to more of the senior managers and middle managers. And so it hadn't really taken off at all. And I remember trying to explain to my husband, this is what I wanted to do. And, you know, he's always backed me throughout my entire career without really knowing what it is that I'm I'm off to do. which, of course, is really uh, important for leaders as well, that you have really great backers. So. And sometimes those are people who just are there who support us, but exactly as you said, sometimes don't really know what we do, but they just become our rocks. So, Natalie, I wanted to go back to the early days of your career, and this isn't necessarily even with Open Door, but I wanted to explore in the first instance when you first found yourself in a leadership role. Can you remember when that was and tell us a little bit about how that came to pass? I worked in banking and finance and in IT and in project management in the early days of my career. It was pretty natural back then, it still is today, I think, that if you're good at your job and you do your job well, then you're given a team to lead. So I was leading teams very early in my career, actually. And the reason I think for that was because I had the knowledge, I had the subject matter expertise. I was friendly, motivated, goal-orientated person, could make decisions. So I think back then it was natural then I would start to lead a team. And that was a small team of analysts and they were basically reporting to me on a day-to-day basis. Interestingly, when I reflect back now, it was more of a team leadership position, I think. The remuneration and all the performance discussions were held at the next level up. As will often happen in, in first leadership roles. 
Can you remember the first thing that came to you while you were wearing that leader badge that made you sort of go, oh, gosh, how do I handle this one? There's a couple of things that really stand out for me. At the time, my male peers were actually being promoted into leadership positions. And interestingly, it was into higher leadership positions than what I was experiencing. So one of my first into leadership was actually to resolve that conflict about work and pay and remuneration when I was doing equivalent or more in terms of my role, but my male peers weren't. And the other one was also a really strange incident that I had to manage, which was around dress code. There seemed to be a rumour that I had, if you wanted to work with me or work on my team, you had to have a certain dress code. And it wasn't true at all, but it was must have been a perception that I was giving out, I think. There was some sort of weird dynamic going on that was preventing people either joining the team or feeling comfortable on the team all around dress code. So the way I approached those was basically with open conversations, open conversations with my manager, open conversations with team, open conversations about what's expected, what the actual perception was, what I was actually thinking And I really have always taken that approach throughout my career to actually put things on the table and have the conversation. One of the challenges that new leaders often have, rumours are just as powerful as news in organisations. And as leaders, we have to be able to deal with the things that come from the rumour mill, regardless of whether they're founded in truth or not. And your your story is a great example of that, where the rumour that you were dealing with had by the sounds of it, no basis in truth. The solution, the way you dealt with it, dealing with it up front and putting it on the table, that's a great lesson for folks, right? It's interesting because I have heard of leaders say, well, you can't spend all your time listening to rumours and you can't spend all your time being distracted by rumours. And actually, I agree with that. However, there are going to be some things that you can't just let slide because From my perspective back then at the time, it was getting in the way of goals that we were trying to achieve, but also bringing out the best in people as well. What you were just referencing about finding the balance between, I guess, dealing with something that's come from a rumour mill and yet not obsessing about it, I think that's the great learning space for new leaders. A, rumours are going to happen, aren't they? And you certainly don't want to allow yourself to kind of obsess about that and kind of beat yourself up over the fact that rumours exist. But at the same time, just finding as you did, I think, in the story that you share, just get on the front foot, deal with it once and then call it dealt with. That's a really great way of describing it too, Wayne, the obsessing, because it really is easy to obsess over things and then lose sleep over it. The rumours or the negative talk actually get a life of their own. They become something more than they actually are. I've done a lot of mediation throughout my career as well. And what I find is that a lot of the mediation is about rumours or assumptions we made which weren't actually correct. So I really do encourage getting on the front foot, sitting down, exactly what you said, and trying to communicate and identify what assumptions we've made, try to identify what was I making up that might not have been true? <laughs> and they're difficult conversations to have, but I can assure you what's more difficult is losing sleep night after night after night, obsessing like you suggested. And I can tell you I've done that and it's not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, people hearing this story will find some relief in kind of going, okay, well, this is the sort of stuff that happens to everyone. And I think it does. Let's move on from that one. And when you started your own business as a founder and, you know, in the early days, I'm sure you were building a team and getting the business going. Can you think of any leadership hard yards that you encountered in that period that you would want to share with our listeners? I think the hard yards for me came in the gap between the vision that I had and what I really wanted and what I really felt was possible versus the (laughs) day-to-day. So, you know, the day-to-day is no clients. You know, you, you are literally building from the ground up. And sometimes in that gap, there's not sometimes, but often, I suppose, in that gap, there's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of easy roads to take as well. It's much easier if I just go and get a job and go back to the high-paid roles I had. And so that's where the hard yards are. For me, it was in the belief you had to have, in the vision that you had to have. I call it holding the torch. You almost have to hold the torch for your vision and shine a light on where you want to go despite all the fears and the worries and the concerns and the lack of income and all of those things. And I think it's that persistence and the the belief that is so important even in moments of doubt and there's a lot of moments of doubt as well. So that's why I talk about that gap between, you know, where I want to be versus what the actual reality is. And it's not easy sometimes. That's an amazing share for our listeners. We have a lot of founders listening to the show and my guess is probably every single one of them has had or is in exactly that phase. And like you say, we start our own businesses with ambition, we create vision, we know what it is that that we want to create. But the simple reality is it takes time, doesn't it? The analogy I often use is that if you want to build a building, the first thing you have to do is dig a hole. And the bigger the building you want to build, the deeper the hole you have to build before you actually start to go up. And that's starting a business, isn't it? You invest time, you invest money, and you invest emotion before you start to see the returns. What was the self-talk that you were able to kind of like tap into? How did you make sure that you never lost sight of the vision and you stayed the course? Well, I like to keep things quite simple, actually. And I, I definitely relate to everything you're talking about that building analogy is a really great one because sometimes you know that you're doing everything right but the results aren't coming or they're not coming fast enough and that's I think the case with any goals that we set for ourselves including the business goals we had. Back then I'm quite a person who likes to capture things visually so I drew a diagram. (laughs) I drew a diagram of what (laughs) things might look like you know and I wrote out a mantra and uh, I photocopied it a few times and I laminated it and I read it every morning and I read it every night and whenever I had doubts I had this mantra quite close to me and it was along the lines of my life is abundant my business is booming you know my life is abundant I'm grateful for everything in my life and my business is booming and so I kept it quite short and I also had a number of different things I added to it And it's really interesting when I look back on that mantra because I found it actually recently. (laughs) Most of what I wrote is still true and I still really am grateful. My life is abundant and, you know, business is booming. Now, of course, booming depends on your definition at the time, doesn't it? But (laughs) keeping it old school just to continue to reinforce what you believe in 
And of course, that does mean that you need to have a serious think about whether what you're doing is needed by the market, whether you need to make changes. And, you know, I was reflecting on a journal entry that I wrote where I wrote, I've made mistakes and I'm not sure what those mistakes are going to cost me. I was reflecting on some really tough times. And again, the mantra is there. I'm grateful for what I have. Even though I didn't feel like my life was abundant, even though I didn't feel like my business was booming, I kept kind of repeating that to myself. (laughs) I'm going to try something, I suppose. (laughs) And Natalie, for you, when you were starting out, I guess your early clients may have been relatively small clients, but over the course of years, you've actually been extraordinarily successful in getting some huge clients as as well. How early was that part of your vision and how did you kind of make that happen? It was always part of my vision to be a service provider back to corporates. So I always had a big vision that I would be servicing large corporates. So my first client was actually an executive coaching client and it happened to be ANZ. And it all came via relationships. I had a colleague, a friend who said, are you coaching? And I said, yes, great. And she said, how much do you charge? And I said, what's the going rate? You know, I didn't even have a pricing scheme when I (laughs) that client came through a relationship. The next client came through a relationship as well, and that was Flight Centre. And Flight Centre said to me, can you run leadership workshops? And, of course, I said, yes, I can. It's going to sound very kind of cliche, but saying yes to something and then working out how are we going to do that and what do they need and what do I know about that that I can actually contribute? How can I contribute to the conversations? So not everything was in place at all. I'm the more of a person who has the big ideas and then the implementation has to catch up. And my team, even today, you know, they ask me about these big ideas and about implementation. I'm like, mm, I haven't quite sorted out the whole implementation yet, but I can see the roadmap. It's just about then putting the <laughs> number on the road, so to speak. So. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership, where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognises that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. Over the years as your business grew, obviously the business becomes bigger, the leadership challenges become greater. Just maybe even thinking back to maybe the last five years, can you think of any particular leadership issues that have still managed to rock your boat? We talk a lot about strengths-based coaching. So really identifying what a person's strengths are and trying to leverage those strengths. And I really want to walk the talk on that. I really want to identify what my team's strengths are and how can we leverage those strengths, be critical thinking, be compassion, creativity, strategic mindedness, whatever it is. And I think the challenges that I've had is sometimes the business doesn't need what the person actually can offer or the business needs something different. And that's a really, really challenging thing because I'm trying to build on the person's capability and capacity and their strengths, 
But at the same time, this is actually what I know the business needs. And the biggest challenge is, is trying to manage that gap, talk about that gap, work through that gap to see if what the business actually needs is what the person wants to do. And unfortunately, it's really, really difficult because that can then lead to big discussions in terms of the gaps performance conversations or things like that. And it's only because the business is evolving and you can see where we need to go and what the business needs. When it comes to strengths, you need the person leveraging their strengths in the right role, meeting the organisational goals. And unfortunately, there's been times when the real leadership challenge comes when those three circles, if you like, uh, the person's strengths, the job competency and the organisational goals don't actually marry up. And then that makes for some tough conversations and the potential for people to actually move on. But it's really tough when you've got a really close-knit team and you've achieved a lot together as well. First of all, thanks for sharing this. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper. I'm sorry if this is uncomfortable, but how do you feel like literally kind of the night before you know you have to have that conversation? I don't sleep. I feel worried and concerned because I want the best for the person that I'm having the conversation with, I really truly want the best for them. In my heart of hearts and in my head, I know that what I'm doing is the right thing, but it doesn't make it any easier. I will run that conversation over and over and over in my head and I'll think about the scenarios and what if they do this and what if they do that and what if this happens. And I've coached a lot of people through this actually. So we talk openly about how they're feeling and and what they're thinking. But at the same time, there's a quiet knowing or confidence that it's the right thing to do. Now, you might be making a mistake in hindsight. You might look back and go, that's the worst mistake. But at some point, the head and the heart need to settle down and agree. (laughs) For me, some quiet reflection and quiet meditation calms down that hypersensitivity so that I can and easier and feel an easier pathway forward. The last time I had to have this kind of conversation, I think I went to the toilet three or four times because uh, I was procrastinating. <laughs> you know, I couldn't do it. I, I just, you know, we, we both knew that it was time to move on, but it was very difficult and my procrastination strategy was to run to the toilet two or three times. So... Uh, in the end, you know, we sat down and <laughs> in the end I sat down, you know, I, I'm the one that had to sit down and, and have the conversation. And they're always, for me, quite tough conversations because I'm quite loyal. So I will procrastinate, I'll put it off, I'll do everything I can to try to make the relationship work, I'll change people's roles, I'll, I'll really work very, very hard to avoid having to make those tough decisions. In the end, the tough decisions actually allow you to grow and develop. And they're the ones that have actually made a significant difference to the business as well. Look, again, you know, a huge thanks for sharing in a very raw and open way kind of the things that you've experienced in these times. Hearing you kind of talk about bringing your mind back to this is the right thing, it's the right thing for my business, and you have to make the right decisions for your business because your business it's not just an entity. It's also an employer of people and potential helper of people. It's that kind of sense of, you know, I've got a lot of other people in the canoe that I need to look after. And sometimes you have to make the hard decision about one person to make sure that the rest of the the people in the canoe kind of are best looked after. And, you know, in a business like yours, which is a business of helping people, 
you know, there is so much more net gain, but it doesn't make it any easier, you know, when that moment actually comes, does it? And, and you've shared some great techniques about, you know, meditation and mental control and so on to minimize the pain, but it's just painful. Not for everyone, interestingly. Like I remember the first time the company I worked with was going into administration and I was handed an organisational chart which had 60 or 70 people on it and the administrator said, circle the five people we need to go forward. He said, we've got budget for five people, circle the people that you think will enable the company to move forward. So I looked at this organisational chart and it's like you described. There are real people with real lives and real mortgages and family. Some people were pregnant and, you know, the administrator had no feeling. He was just certified people, I need that answer by 3pm this afternoon. And I said, do you think it might be possible that we can give it to you, you know, the next morning, 9am Monday? And he said, okay, as long as it's 9am. You know, he had a deal to do who had business to do we circled five people and I did it logically I did it in terms of what was best for the organization who had the capacity the capability everything we needed to move this company forward and I made a very strong logical decision and then I bawled my eyes out afterwards so I can make those really strong tough decisions and have those strong tough conversations but it still has an impact on me. I suppose the point I'm saying is that not everyone is like that and that is also okay. You know, I'm not judging here. I know people when I've described difficulties I've had, they just say, get rid of them. You're the boss, get rid of them. And I'm like, yeah, I wish I just could <laughs> sometimes. And then I've got other advisors who say, sure, you can do that and you'll end up in Fair Work Australia. The dynamic of people is real. And I just acknowledge that not everyone's like that and that's actually totally fine as well. Whatever approach you're taking, you know, it may not be the same as mine and you might think that I'm not tough. Well, I've had to make some incredibly tough decisions. I just cannot forget the people element. What really resonates with me is empathy. For the book that we wrote, we studied the top characteristics of the world's best coaches. 500 coaches were interviewed and the top 10 practices. And one of those top 10 practices was empathy. And there's so many coaches around the world that suggest that one of the top practices is empathy. And I truly believe uh, leaders that can exercise and demonstrate empathy at the same time having to make the tough decisions. It is a real skill, but it is something very important and special that we bring to leadership, I think. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, you have this extraordinary wealth of experience as a, as a coach, and I guess you would have a perspective on some of the challenges that so many leaders and particularly younger leaders face in today's work environment. And one of the ones that you and I have chatted about a little bit before was this whole concept of imposter syndrome and how debilitating that can be for younger leaders. And I would love uh, you to give the listeners a bit of your perspective on that whole concept of dealing with imposter syndrome and how we can best equip ourselves not to get kind of sucked into that vortex. Imposter syndrome is real. It does happen. It's that time when you're in a meeting and you think, what am I doing here? Actually, it's normally not in the meeting or it can be in the meeting, but it's normally before the meeting. So 
where we have to be careful and what I've coached a lot of people is that feeling that I don't belong or I'm not enough or I don't have the qualifications or whatever's going on, that often happens before you go into a meeting. And if you take that into a meeting, it inhibits your high performance in the meeting. It inhibits you being the best and bringing out the best in the meeting. So a lot of the coaching that I do about imposter syndrome is coming back to the truth, actually, because it's not true that you don't belong. It's not true that you you shouldn't have a seat at that table. Someone's invited you for a reason to be at that table. I remember coaching a, an executive woman who was actually not going to go to a board meeting because of she felt imposter syndrome, but she had been invited to the board meeting as a subject matter expert. And so we had to get back to what's actually true, that you you are qualified, you do have something to contribute, you do have value. And sometimes it's about running through how we actually add value because I think imposter syndrome comes because we think we can't add value, that we've got nothing and why should we be there? I remember getting meetings going, I looked around the meeting and everyone, you know, I don't mind saying is an older male and I could be the only so-called younger female in the room. And I just look around the table and go, you know what? I have something to say. I have something to contribute. I have value to add. And so I used to kind of remember that and own it. And a lot of my coaching around this kind of topic is around that. Physically, I I ask people to write it out. Take it in as notes. So remember when you're concerned or doubting yourself, remember why you're there. Sometimes people might say, oh, that's very easy for you to say and all those kind of things. But for me, it comes back to what's the truth? The truth is you have enormous value to add and you're not going to serve anyone not being in that room, (laughs) not being at the table, not speaking up or doing what you think is important. We can all feel this at some point, I think, and it is real and I think it's worth acknowledging that it's okay to feel that way and at the same time, we need to have a good look at it about what we're telling ourselves and what we're saying to ourselves and do some really strong reframing about that to come back to what's actually true. That's just gold advice to folks that are listening who deal with that. And, you know, again, you know, often the founder in a business, as their business gets going, they so often find themselves as the youngest person in the room. And you also speak about kind of being, you know, the only female in the room. And, you know, that just adds another whole complexity and in some different cultures, Asian culture, for argument's sake, um, you know, that just creates just kind of one more level of perceived hierarchy that's kind of working against you. And I guess the other thing that since we're talking about this now, for anyone who has other leaders around them, you know, if you're the leader of leaders, recognize that some of those people are probably dealing with imposter syndrome and you can make a huge difference to them just by reminding them that you believe in them, that that may well be an extraordinary boost for someone who's got imposter syndrome and doesn't speak up. And I think, you know, we can all kind of play an active role in in trying to, you know, minimize that for as many people as possible, right? 
Oh, absolutely. And our research 100% supports what you're saying, Wayne, because belief, also one of the top 10 practices of the world's best coaches, and it's the belief in the individual sometimes when they don't have the belief in themselves. So that's really what you're talking about. The person might be experiencing a lack of belief in themselves, but as leaders, I want to be one of those people who helped and instilled belief in the person rather than a person who knocked down someone's beliefs and, and their vision, etc. So the research really does definitely support what you're saying. Also, it's trying to understand what makes you confident. So the other thing I was going to add around imposter syndrome is what makes you confident? For some people, it's having the data, the research, the discussions. For me, I always did a lot of research, had the data, had the discussions, collaborated. So whenever I was going to speak up, it was always backed by something. That also helps when it comes to imposter syndrome, that your leader believes in you, 100% important, but also identifying what helps you believe in yourself. Natalie, I'm conscious of time and so we're going to move to the concluding phase of this episode and I'm going to give you a bucket of paint and a paintbrush, okay? You get to paint something on the wall opposite your workplace. Imagine whenever you look up from your desk, you see those words. What do you write? Lift your head to the sun, I think, is what's really coming forward through me as well. It's like lift your head to the sun. When I need to, I put the sun on my face or I lift my head and and that that sun is a warming, it's a confidence, it's a calming thing. So I'm making this up as we go along. As you can tell, the words are moving around, but I I think it is something (laughs) along those lines. Lift your head to the sun. That's beautiful. I love it. I love it. That totally resonates with me as well. That's fantastic. Natalie, this has been amazing. I've learned so much listening to you and I'm sure our, our, our listeners have as well. For those who are keen to kind of learn a little bit more about your business at Open Door, do you want to just give a quick kind of, this is where you can find us and this is what we do? You can find us via our website at opendoorcoaching.com.au. On LinkedIn, uh, Natalie Ashdown, you can also get a copy of the book, What Makes a Great Coach, lots of ways to connect with us. And it'd be a pleasure to connect with anyone who would like to as well. Fantastic. And I can certainly uh, vouch for both your organization and and your book. So I'd encourage uh, anyone who's looking to learn a little bit more about coaching or or potentially go down that path to uh, reach out. uh, you, You won't be disappointed. Natalie, it's been amazing having you on the show today. Thank you so much. I wish you uh, all the best in the next 20 years of your business and thanks so much for sharing today. Thanks for the opportunity. I've really appreciated being able to really reflect and, uh, and it's such an important thing to do. So thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, Don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do and keep believing in yourself as a leader.